Previously on Chillingworth. Police flocked to the Chillingworth home in Manalapan. There were 100 law enforcement officers on the scene. Somebody complained that the sheriff's office had walked all through the place and destroyed all the evidence and there wasn't anything really to investigate. At the head of the intense investigation was Palm Beach County Sheriff John Kirk. John Kirk was a very, very corrupt public official. Probably the most corrupt. Why is it so important that we're talking about Sheriff John Kirk? He's the man that led the investigation into the disappearance of the Chillingworths. We were going to a cocktail party and I had had a dream and I said to Joe, Joe, I dreamed last night that uh, the Chillingsworth were in a warehouse. So where are our warehouse? Let's go find them. And he turned around and he says, Skeeter, those people are dead out in the ocean. They're not to be found. You just heard Skeeter Yenzer. Skeeter and her husband Jim were close friends with Judge Joe Peel and his wife Imogene. Like most people in Palm Beach County, in the wake of the Chillingworth's disappearance, Joe Peel offered a theory about what had happened. Many people thought whoever had abducted the Chillingworths might be after another prominent member of society, possibly another judge or political figure. They were thinking, who's next? Welcome to Chillingworth. Joe Peel was one of the few remaining judges in Palm Beach County. He was the city magistrate or municipal judge of West Palm Beach. I thought of Joe Peel as being the next future generation of a pillar of the community. I mean, that, I could just, I said, oh, he's gonna do really good things. People are going to look up to him, and the black community are going to appreciate what he did and his empathy with their struggle. I just could see that. I thought, oh, and he and Imogene are just going to be, you know, the most popular couple in the county. Jonathan and I spoke with Joe Peel's next-door neighbor, Mimi Mursky. She was from Georgia, but moved down to West Palm when she was about 20. immaculate in his appearance, always. A real polished gentleman. He always reminded me of Paul Newman. Joe wasn't imposing physically. He was about five foot nine, slight build, but his manner, his carriage, his refined features and slick back hair, all of it drew attention to him. His wife was beautiful. She taught junior high, she taught social studies. They were the prototype Hollywood couple. They seemed devoted, loving. We just all said, aren't they the most precious couple? You know? <laughs> that, that was it. She had a lot to say about Joe. She spoke about his position on civil rights, which she felt really stood out at the time, including among the lawyers she knew. 
He is going to be an advocate for rights. And of course, at that time, there was no Martin Luther King, but looking back on it, reflecting, I thought he could have organized the Freedom March. I mean, he was that, he seemed that sincere about the racial situation. He had disdain for any kind of prejudice, no matter who it was. He was against anti-Semitism. Joe is among the handful of white attorneys who represented black clients, both in civil cases and in criminal cases. And this curried favor within the black community because people realized that there were a lot of white attorneys who simply would not represent black people because of their prejudices. At the same time, he didn't participate actively in the civil rights movement. He wasn't what you would call an activist. In as early as the late 40s, some local attorneys were carrying out civil rights campaigns in West Palm Beach. Beginning just after the war, activists fought an epic battle against the school board to win equal pay for black teachers. They eventually prevailed. Joe Peel, not long after he started practicing law, ran for the position of city magistrate in West Palm Beach. And this was an important position. It wasn't nearly as significant as circuit court judge, which was the position that Judge Chillingworth held. The city magistrate oversaw minor crimes and misdemeanors, but he would also issue warrants in the event that the West Palm Beach Police Department wanted to raid an illegal gambling house or wanted to shut down racketeers. And that was in 1952 when he became municipal judge. And it was an elected position. You actually had to run, you had to campaign. And he won pretty handily. There was a period around the era of 54, 55, 56 when everybody worshipped him. Since the city magistrate was not a full-time position, Joe continued to practice law. Starting in 1952, three years before the Chillingworth disappearance, Joe practiced out of an office in the Harvey Building, which was the premier office building in West Palm Beach. Interestingly enough, Curtis Chillingworth and his family owned the Harvey Building. The Harvey Building was the crown jewel of Chillingworth's vast portfolio of real estate holdings, which he and his father had steadily amassed for decades. So Joe was literally paying rent to the judge. And he was able to afford this prestigious office space because Joe worked hard to maintain a diverse client base. He, of course, represented both black and white clients, men and women in divorce cases, and racketeers whose places of business had been raided. So he was pretty enterprising, and he took on even minor cases. And Joe specialized in some degree in legal issues facing nightclub and bar owners. He fought for the extension of operating hours even until 5 a.m., he helped his clients with liquor license issues, and occasionally in that business, this meant people who at times dabbled in criminal enterprises like the restaurant tour, nightclub impresario, notorious labor goon Barney Barnett from Miami. And Joe himself actually spent some evenings in his clients' bars and nightclubs. Yeah, he frequently stayed out late. I did hear that Joe liked this bar up on Dixie. And I thought, why in the world would he want to hang out there? And they had a mermaid that swam in a tank there. So I said, that's crazy. They said, oh, yeah, he likes to go there. It was a sort of a third-rate strip joint. It was just a, a strip joint. It was a, a body, rowdy nightclub. 
the Chi-Chi Club. There was a rumor that Joe had girlfriends and that he was bringing them to the house. Now, when he was bringing the girls there, uh, I, I, that was pretty obvious because the way he parked, when he'd bring, bring lady friends there, my husband pointed it out to me, and there were no garages, it was just a driveway, and he would pull the car way in beyond the driveway in the back of the house and let, you know, his girlfriends get out. One night, Imogene found Joe asleep in bed with another woman. Joe tried to convince his wife that he had staggered into the bedroom, drunk off his ass, and had collapsed into the bed not knowing that a nude woman had also passed out there. Understandably, Imogene didn't believe Joe's story. In spite of his blatant infidelity, she stayed with him. Joe's infidelities raised concerns about his ethics, but for the most part, his neighbors were the only people aware of what he'd been up to every time Imogene went away, usually when she went up to see her parents in Lake City. Right, then in 1952, the entire population of West Palm Beach saw his morals called into question. I did hear that he was admonished for representing both a husband and a wife in a lawsuit. Well, I knew he knew both of them. The woman was a well-known interior designer, and at that time, she was the only one. She did some work for my in-laws and for me, and she had Joe and Alma Jean's house looking like a little dollhouse. It was adorable. Judge Chillingworth presided over the malpractice case against Joe, who had appeared before the judge many times before. Chillingworth, who could be very stern and didn't suffer fools at all, suspended Joe from practicing for two months. He recognized that it was unethical and a clear case of malpractice where Joe could have been disbarred, but cited Joe's inexperience in youth. And Judge Chillingworth warned Joe that if he committed malpractice again, he would be disbarred. Most members of the bar saw Judge Chillingworth's decision as compassionate. He had spared Joe from the most severe penalty. And so after a short suspension, Joe returned to his practice with his reputation relatively unscathed. He was still a popular municipal judge, and he was still known as a talented attorney. In 1953, not long after Joe's suspension, a lanky, handsome veteran showed up at his office in the Harvey Building. His name was Floyd Holzapple. Floyd was in a dispute over an automobile loan and needed a lawyer. Floyd hailed from Oklahoma, and he was a paratrooper in World War II. And so Joe agreed to take Floyd's case. So they went to trial and Judge Chillingworth presided. Joe ultimately won a small settlement and from that point on, Joe and Floyd became great friends. Floyd grew up in Oklahoma City. When he was 14, he was sent to Los Angeles by his mother to live for a time with his natural father. His father was openly a bookmaker. He was a bookie in LA, and he actually taught little 14-year-old Floyd the trade. An excellent role model. Truly. After his saintly mom divorced his natural dad, she ended up getting hitched to two dirtbags in a row, both of whom were abusive louts. Floyd was a very smart kid. He was very curious about the world. 
He didn't finish high school, though. He joined the Army and became a paratrooper at 17 in 1941 and was shipped out to North Africa. In one day, the enemy smashed through the defenses of the American First Army on a 45-mile front and was fighting deep into Luxembourg and Belgium. He actually earned a Purple Heart and he reportedly fought in the Battle of the Bulge. The army held in Belgium. The attack was blunted, the spearhead stopped, the Nazi columns contained and thrown back by men who had flung themselves into the breach. He was shot at some point and sent to Miami to convalesce, along with a lot of other soldiers. But after that, he actually went back to Oklahoma, where he was a fingerprint technician for a while with the Oklahoma City Police. He had some odd jobs. For example, he was a car tire salesman, sold pots and pans, he sold beer. He had his fingers in a number of pies. Floyd got into a little bit of trouble in Oklahoma, that's for sure. He robbed three movie theaters in one night, but he was caught and he served 18 months for armed robbery. And then he was able to somehow get paroled by promising to go to law school, which was kind of interesting because he really never even graduated from high school. The criminal justice system in small town Oklahoma was apparently more flexible in those days. Floyd's years in Oklahoma after the war were not incredibly successful on any level. He had a brief broken marriage. He was drawn into or he decided to commit these crimes that led to imprisonment and he had a record. He was not considered to be an upstanding member of society. He decided to start over. That makes sense, but where would he go? He knew LA, he'd lived there as a kid. He knew Kansas, his grandparents lived there. But he also knew Miami, Florida, where he'd been sent to recover after he was wounded in the war. What had happened during the war was there was such a need for hospitals for wounded soldiers, and sailors and airmen, that the military would commandeer hotels and convert them into hospitals. One of the hotels that was converted into a hospital was the Biltmore Hotel in Coral Gables, Florida, just outside of Miami. It was constructed in the 1920s. A visit to Coral Gables, one of the world's most beautiful cities. It's a lavish, humongous, beautiful Mediterranean-style hotel. And one of the things that stands out about the hotel is that it has this pool. People talk about Olympic-sized swimming pools. The pool at the Biltmore seems like five Olympic-sized swimming pools. They used to have these lavish aquatic shows with Esther Williams and all these other Hollywood stars where there might be a thousand spectators in the stands. It was an amazing place. And this is where Floyd convalesced for several months. He got to know Miami staying in this hospital-slash-elegant 20s-era hotel. He'd been severely wounded, but on the other hand, he got to get out of the hotel as he was getting better. And he thought, well, I'd like to come back here someday. And so now, a few years later, he had every reason in the world to get the hell out of Oklahoma and move to Miami, or Miami, as a lot of people called it back then. It will be your magic carpet that will carry you to the land of your heart's desire. Not long after he arrived in Miami, he met a woman who was married, but was separated from her husband. Her name was Mary Bickford. 
Floyd and Mary had a hard time making ends meet, really in terms of being able to live a decent life in Miami Beach. Floyd's expectations of the city he had longed to return to weren't met, and they had an unpleasant, harrowing experience that really unnerved Mary. One night they were having dinner with a friend and his girlfriend who was married, and the girlfriend's husband showed up at the restaurant. What followed was mayhem, literally mayhem under Florida's criminal statutes. The husband wasn't happy to see his wife with another man, so he tackled Floyd's friend, who then made mincemeat out of the guy and ended up biting his nose off. That not only ruined Mary and Floyd's dinner, the whole episode, along with their financial dire straits, led them to say, we've got to get out of here. Let's start over in a more promising place. And that was West Palm. They'd heard from friends it was a great town, so they moved there. So right after getting to West Palm Beach, Floyd got a job at a place called Hardin Motors. Floyd greased automobiles at Hardin Motors. He basically was a mechanic. Mary had a much more exhilarating job, shall we say, as a bartender at the Chi-Chi Club. It was what people generally call a strip club. Doreen the Aqua Queen was the featured performer at the Chi-Chi Club. Her act involved a giant tank of water that was wheeled onto the stage with her inside, and she would strip inside the tank. Floyd, through Mary, all of a sudden was introduced to this kind of edgy, in some ways on the margins of the underworld milieu, so to speak. A lot of professionals went to these places, a lot of upstanding citizens, but on the other hand, there were some people who had one foot in the criminal realm as well. Also, there was something that most people today aren't familiar with, and that was the role of B-girls and it was kind of a vestige of the Depression era and of World War II. This was the practice of nightclubs, hiring young women to hang out at the bars and flirt with men, get them to buy the young women drinks, and then the bar, the establishment, would give the women a percentage of the cost of each of those drinks, which of course were watered down. So this was the atmosphere that Floyd and Mary were spending a lot of time in through Mary's job primarily. Floyd had a fairly clear idea of what he wanted, not necessarily a specific occupation, because he knew he was smart. He knew he stood out from other people. He knew that he had charisma. He knew that he was articulate. He had certain gifts. He wanted to raise himself up to a level in society that paralleled his intellect and his talents. He just didn't know how to go about it, though. Floyd felt a lot of frustration about what he saw as restrictions that had been placed on him by the circumstances of his upbringing, and he wanted to overcome that and reach a different level where he could be appreciated and which could lead to lots of things. So here he was in West Palm Beach, He didn't really know anybody besides Mary. He wanted to expand his horizons. So Floyd decided to join the Young Republicans Club in West Palm Beach. 
He was looking to make those right connections, and this was the perfect place to do that. Floyd was very sharp. He was very well-spoken. But he didn't exactly have a refined manner about him. It wasn't that he was crude or socially inept in any way. It was just that people who were from a more privileged background might have found him to be unacceptable in terms of welcoming him into their social circles and their business circles. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that they would have been standoffish. But Floyd's decision to join the Young Republicans didn't bear fruit in the way that he'd hoped. He thought it would offer him the chance to make a connection, to meet somebody who could usher him into a new world where he could realize his expectations of himself. Shortly thereafter, though, Floyd finally did make that connection. But the connection didn't exactly materialize the way that Floyd expected it to. He found that relationship when he was sued over his car loan and he was told he should go talk to Judge Joe Peel. That's how Floyd Holzapple and Joe Peel met. Think about this dynamic. You have this very intelligent guy with this colorful past who must have had amazing stories to tell Joe, including his stories of robbery and bookmaking at 14. And on the other side of the equation, you have Joe Peel from this really established family who's a city magistrate who's also practicing law, kind of a progressive guy, very ambitious guy. They're both the same age, they're about 28 years old, and they both like to go out at night. They both love women. They have a lot of things in common. They were kindred spirits. They forged a symbiotic relationship, for sure. They both aspired for more. And through this bond, they hoped to get to that same place together. They needed each other. Joe's goal was to become the governor of the state of Florida. And Floyd's desire was to raise himself up. Each thought the other could help him achieve this goal. And here's what happened after they both realized that. There was a dark synergy. Something about that dynamic brought out the criminality that was already in Floyd and was latent within Joe. The first manifestation of this was a fairly run-of-the-mill automobile insurance fraud scheme. What it involved was simply staging a car accident, having a corrupt insurance adjuster work with you, also a corrupt insurance agent, as well as probably a corrupt doctor. You could make a false claim with all those people on your side, and that's what they did. The insurance agent, according to Floyd, was a guy named Jim Yenzer, a client in a very small case, a misdemeanor case, who Joe had represented, who'd become a friend of Joe's. And then the insurance adjuster was a guy named Hal Gray, who had a law degree. He was not a lawyer at the time, eventually would become a lawyer, but he was the guy, according to Floyd, who issued a report that said the car was destroyed or badly damaged, which justified the insurance company's payout to the policyholder. Floyd and Howe weren't exactly from the same stock, so there was a little bit of friction between them initially, but they got along okay. So they carried out these fraudulent insurance cases for several months. They made a little bit of money doing that, but that wasn't going to provide the gratification, that kind of transgressive gratification, 
that Joe developed an appetite for after he met Floyd. So Floyd and Joe's relationship deepened. They were spending a lot of time together, and Floyd actually got to know Joe's wife, Imogene. Joe got to know Mary Bickford, Floyd's girlfriend, and they enjoyed each other's company. Floyd actually volunteered with Joe's campaign. He kind of became his right-hand man, and when it came to his political aspirations, he was an unlikely person to play that role. But he was a smart guy, and as we said, Joe trusted him. In late 1954, Joe is about to get what in his mind was a golden opportunity. On December 1st, 1954, Dwight Rogers, who was the U.S. representative for West Palm Beach and Palm Beach County, passed away. He was a very popular congressman, and he died before his term had run out. There was going to have to be an election before the November election was scheduled in the following year, so a lot of people were interested in the seat, including Dwight Rogers' son, Paul. Paul Rogers was a very popular, very respected young attorney who happened to be a close friend of John's father and was one of the groomsmen in John's mother and father's wedding. So Paul Rogers filed to run for U.S. representative to replace his father, and he was by far the leading candidate. Joe told Floyd that his plan was to become state attorney, replace Phil O'Connell, and then ultimately to run for governor. But he wasn't fixated on that series of steps. He saw the opportunity to become a U.S. congressman as an alternate way to the governor's mansion. So he decided that he was going to run for the seat. Joe recognized, though, that no one could contend with a very dignified, very intelligent Paul Rogers. Joe didn't think he could defeat him in a fair election. So he figured his only way to win the seat was to do the unspeakable. In Florida in the 50s, many politicians concocted a multitude of sleazy tactics to propel them to victory. These tactics included spreading rumors about their opponents having affairs with floozies, exaggerating the minor flaws of their opponents, and accepting ill-begotten and illicit campaign contributions from their supporters. But in Joe's mind, the best way to ensure victory was to simply whack his opponent. Joe actually conjured a plot to drive up to Paul Rogers' apartment building, take the elevator up to his floor, knock on the door, and blow him away with a shotgun. When Floyd heard the plan, he called it government by assassination. Chillingworth was created by Texas Crew Productions and Nighthouse Films. It's produced by John Moss, myself, Jonathan Payne, Rick Sikowski, and Brad Bernstein.